Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. Mad Max Minute, where we try to catch every drop of Mad Max to the Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 7, which begins with Max running to salvage fuel from the crashed buggy, and it ends with Wes grasping the bolt that has pierced his arm. So we kick off today with Max's boot exiting the black on black, hitting the pavement, and he is getting out of the car. And one of the first things that I notice about this is how, once again, his outfit is noisy. It's funny that you say that because I didn't notice that. I was foolish, and for some reason, I brought home my headphones that belong at work, and I I gave them to you, and you still have them. Really? (laughs) Yes. So I don't have headphones at work anymore, which means when I watch my minutes, I have to listen on fairly low volume. I, I didn't hear the noisy outfit. I did notice his running was very, like, ungraceful. Yeah, he's still got a bad knee. Yes. Left over from when Bubba shot his, well, knee. shot his knee apart. Right. More than anything. Like, he's lucky he has a knee at all. So wherever he got that knee brace, which I think when we were talking earlier, when he went back to claim the body. He must have gotten actual professional medical care because getting shot in the knee that is serious yeah that's not something that you just wrap an ace bandage around and go along your way that's something that especially for that type of injury you know get it looked at get uh, that's something like to help you out surgery and pins and reconstruction i mean you've destroyed a joint yeah it kind of makes you wonder exactly how much attention he was given when he went back to that hospital and i don't know I, i'm not sure exactly what level but enough that he's able to like function for like the rest of all of these movies yes i think people even nowadays who hurt their joints always know that they have hurt that joint mm-hmm like, my sister broke her ankle. And it's, I mean, it's just an ankle. It, you know, not really that big a deal. She never even had, like, a hard cast on it. She had an air cast on it most of the time, I think. But she still can feel that that ankle is different. Mm-hmm. And that was just an ankle. I mean, if you have your knee blown out like that, you're, you're never going to be the same. Yeah. I've had friends who did sports, and they blow out a knee, and their sport career is over. And that's even with, like, the best medical care. Exactly. Available. And then, like, they get to a point where they can, like, participate in an intramural sport. But, like, as far as full-on competitive sports, yeah, they're done. Mm -hmm. They can't go back to that. And so I feel like Max is kind of in that same boat where he's been injured to the point where, yeah, he's not going to become a long-distance runner. But he can still, you know, go and do wasteland stuff with his buddies. Yes, he's certainly getting by. Not that he has buddies. He's got a dog. But that's beside the point. The dog's his buddy. Yeah, buddy and friend. (laughs) So Max hops out of the black on black and he runs along the road up towards this crashed collection of vehicles, it seems. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to call this scene. Like, there's a point where we get a really nice wide shot and you can see the, the truck, the rig, and you can see... There is just garbage and debris everywhere. Yeah, you kind of get the sense that when society started to collapse, whoever owned this truck and trailer decided to put all of their stuff in one place and just go with all of it. Yeah. And 
you kind of get the sense that whatever happened to them, you know, whoever took them out, picked through all of their stuff and took whatever was useful. Right. Not being neat about it at all. Mm -hmm. So also in this wide shot, we see a sign. Mm -hmm. I love signs. That reads Monday, Monday Lookout. Yep. The Monday, Monday Lookout actually has a page on TripAdvisor. And so you can look it up. It's ranked number two in the top 11 things to do in Silverton, New South Wales. It has about 169 reviews and an average star rating of like 4.5. Over 90 of those reviews are like five star reviews because people love going to Monday, Monday Point specifically for like the Vista. Okay, so they're they're scoring the Vista. Is yeah. there like a restaurant there or some sort of visitor center there that they're scoring? Are they just scoring the view? It's a scenic lookout, and that's really all it is. Okay, okay. I picked out a couple of the five-star reviews. Uh, Karen R. gave it five stars. She said it was breathtaking, an awe-inspiring view of just continuous outback. You could actually see the curve of the earth. No words or pictures could do justice. You just have to be there. A must Oh. And then another user, MJS181, gave it five stars, said, Wow, how good is Australia? Don't miss a sunset up at Monday Lookout, one of the most spectacular you'll be sure to witness. Another user, Ben Mac, has five stars, top spot. It's beautiful. Australia is truly the best place on the planet. You have to go just past Silverton, where they made Mad Max. And of course, there's at least one stick in the mud. Uh, user Peter Langston rates it two stars, and he says, yawn, underwhelming, lots of flat horizon. Seriously? He probably it's the Australian went... outback. What do you expect? He probably went during the day. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like... You know, sunset is just prime, prime time. Yeah. So Silverton, New South Wales is 1,167 kilometers or about 725 miles west of Sydney. That is equivalent to us hopping in the car and driving to Raleigh oh, in North Carolina. Right. Which when we did that, we flew. Yeah. In fact, Silverton is actually further away from Sydney than Melbourne by about oh. 250 kilometers I think. Oh, that's yeah. really far away. It is very far away. It's not exactly something if you're flying into Sydney, hop on a bus and take a couple hour trip yeah. out to oh. Silverton. Okay. So I wouldn't necessarily add it to the sightseeing tour unless you want to hire a bush pilot. Well. Now I just gave you the idea of hiring a bush pilot. Well, I'm not going to hire a bush pilot, but it just makes me wish that we had like just ridiculous amounts of money to hire a bush pilot. Yeah. <laughs> Which we don't. <laughs> no, we don't. So we keep spending our money on podcast equipment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so this area, the road out past Silverton towards Monday Monday Plain was used in actually a lot of shots in this movie. Obviously, primarily in this open scene. And it's used in a couple other scenes. Obviously, we get we get the location where the Mac is initially found. And they actually come back to this spot in real life later when they end up crashing the Mac again. This is kind of around that same spot. Okay. So they use it quite a bit. Yep. I don't think that you actually mentioned what Monday Monday is. Monday Monday is a sheep station. Mm. If I understood correctly it's one of the original four sheep stations back in the early 1800s when the english were first like really digging in and spreading around getting their grubby hands on everything yes it was one of the four original and at one point if i remember correctly at one point there were twelve thousand sheep on the property and i'm not sure 
It wasn't clear how many there are now. It did say that they sold about half the flock in the early 1900s, but they didn't say anything about how how big the flock was now. Yeah. So the last number that I saw from was like 1904, I think, was 9,000. That's a lot of sheep. That's still a very, very lot of sheep. Yeah. So Max is jogging up past the Mac, and he's essentially going specifically to the buggy mm-hmm. because that's the the first tank that he's going to siphon out. He's going to try and drain it. But as he jogs up past the, the buggy, Wes kind of comes up over the hill and, you know, so they can see each other. Um, actually, you know what? Before we talk about Max and Wes, I do have a couple of quick notes about the truck. So the large Mack truck that we see here on the road is a 1970s. They don't know exactly what year it is, but it's a Mack R600 with a cool power engine setup. The cool power setup uses an aftercooler on the cylinder head and a tip turbine fan and a twin stick transmission. So the engine could have been anywhere from 285 to 350 horsepower, depending on the fuel pump, injector, and turbo combinations. Based on what we see later on in the movie, the truck cab is probably from somewhere between the early 1970s and up till about 1978, somewhere in that range, as it uses the old style roof clearance lamps. The R-Series cab was apparently discontinued in the early 90s. They're going to be hard to find nowadays if you're trying to recreate the Mack truck in your spare time. This is why people think we know stuff about cars. (laughs) Because we're really good at looking up stuff about cars. Yeah. But that all went over my head. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, it's green, right? That the the truck is green that's that's what i know <laughs> the only other thing that i noticed about it is it's green is it didn't look as big as like the classic mac trucks that we see like just around mm-hmm. part of my commute to work is on a road that is very very frequented by rigs of this type and this looks really small. Yeah, I think one of the main reasons it just does not look that impressive is because it's just a simple cab. There's a driving space and then there's really nothing else behind it. Mm. So you've got a really shortened cab compared to the larger rigs that actually have like extra storage or sleep space or seating space behind, behind the driver. That's true. And then... Yeah, it's got that giant cow catcher on the front, but even so, it's nowhere near as large as like the war rig from Fury Road. Right. Nowhere near as massive as that thing. It's a bit more realistic in size, you know? Yeah, I was kind of thinking realistic. Like they didn't make this rig big and impressive for the sake of being big and impressive. And this isn't a criticism, but in Fury Road, that rig, that is the war rig and mm. it is big and impressive. If it, it I doubt it needs to be that big to haul the load that it's carrying it's just big and impressive for being for the sake of being big and impressive yeah and they didn't do that here yeah given the amount of budget that they had to spend on fury road they could go that big right <laughs> they found this one probably at a junkyard yeah road warrior had Nature a bigger budget ran and but it didn't have right. that big of a budget yes so like i said Getting back to the minute proper. Yeah. Max runs up past the truck. He sees Wes come up over the rise and they kind of lock eyes with each other. Max kind of slows down and keeps his eyes forward. We get a good look at the tarp behind him and it says someone spray painted on it. It says the vermin have inherited the earth where earth is written on the door of the cab. So I don't know if this was written by the person who owned the truck and they're like, hey, I'm leaving civilization. I'm going to spray paint this thing so people see what it 
it says as I'm driving away, or it could be left over by the people who were the source of all the arrows that we see just right. littering the area. I have some thoughts on the truck and the driver that I think will be best covered in, I think, minute nine. Yeah, we so see I'll the driver s- later on. Yeah, we'll so save I'll, it. <laughs> I'll save my thoughts on that till minute nine. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. The less we say about that driver, the better. Yeah. I gotta say, as we start talking about the scene kind of switching back and forth between Wes and Max, the way that it's cut makes it look like they're pretty close to each other. Yeah. When in reality, they're quite far apart. Like they can't really see each other that well mm-hmm. but it it's cut in a way where we as the viewers get to see everything we get to see all the expressions on their faces even though they can't see the expressions on each other's faces we get to see everything mm-hmm all the gory details. <laughs> so we get, not necessarily that Wes is here, but we get Wes's hero shot. Yes. We see <laughs> what Max is looking at down the road. It starts down low and it kind of pans up. So we see Wes's boot and then his pants and then his torso and then his face. And this is Vernon Wells, who is going to be more or less the... The main antagonist. Yeah. I mean, he's serving somebody else that we'll get to know, but like he's kind of doing all the work. Yeah, he's the one that keeps surfacing. He's the one that has a lot of interactions with Max specifically. So in the context of this story, it's really Wes who focuses on antagonizing Max. I wouldn't say that Max necessarily sees Wes as someone that he needs to defeat in order to be fulfilled in some way. I think it's more Wes just keeps showing up. Yes, and I think that overarching story and dynamic between the two of them is told in miniature right here in just a matter of a few seconds. Mm -hmm. So we've got Wes, who purposely turned back, sitting out on the road, and we've got Max, who is watching Wes defensively. He's He's keeping an eye on him. He doesn't know what he's planning on doing. He's making sure, you know, he doesn't want to turn his back on Wes because he doesn't trust him, of course. So Max seems a little bit unsure here, not really knowing what to do. Which priority should he make his priority? Yeah, he's kind of remembering another bad experience that he had last time he was staring down someone on a motorcycle. Absolutely. And those people were actively coming at him. Yeah. So that's what he's expecting Wes to do, and that's not what Wes is doing. No. So before we get too into what Wes is doing, like I said, he's played by Vernon Wells. This was Vernon's really big break into film, like I mentioned the other day when we were talking about the opening credits. He had done a lot of television beforehand, and... Following The Road Warrior, which is his number one on his IMDb top four, he did the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie Commando, where he was Bennett. He was like Schwarzenegger's number one rival in that movie. He did a lot of bad stuff in that movie, like killing people left and right and kidnapping children and all this other stuff. He's a bad dude. And he finds himself eventually on the receiving end of an Arnold Schwarzenegger death pun. So (laughs) not many people can say that. Never a good place to be. He shows up again in 1985 in Weird Science, where he plays Lord General. I've never actually seen Weird Science because the idea of the movie is just strange to me. The idea that two nerds, like, cook up the perfect woman. It's just, like, pervy Frankenstein, and it's like, I I don't want to watch that. It's a little too weird for you? Yeah, yeah, in a science-y way. <laughs> Speaking of science, a couple of years later, his number four movie was Inner Space in 1987, where he played Dr. Igo, and uh, that's one I've never seen. Yeah, I've never even heard never of it. Never even heard of it. Before. 
anybody else in that movie that I would recognize might jog my memory. Let's see. Inner Space, a 1987 PG-rated action-adventure comedy starring Dennis Quaid as Lieutenant Tuck Pendleton, Martin Short as Jack Putter, Meg Ryan as Lydia Maxwell, and Kevin McCarthy as Victor Eugene Scrimshaw. Okay. Mm -hmm. That did not help. The... Short summary of the movie on IMDb says a hapless store clerk must foil criminals to save the life of the man who miniaturized in a secret experiment was accidentally injected into him. Okay. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> that still does not ring a bell and I'm okay with that. Yeah, I've never seen it. In Road War, George Miller told a interesting anecdote kind of alongside Vernon Wells as they were being interviewed. When Vernon was first approached with the role, he didn't feel that he would be able to do it justice. The idea of like this scary barbarian guy. And so George brought him in and he said, you know what? Go to hair and makeup. Go to wardrobe. And so they shaved his head. They put him in the mohawk. They gave him the costume. They wore painted him up and they sent him back to George. And the whole time they didn't let him see his own reflection. And when he got back to George Miller, George had a floor length mirror. And so he had Vernon turn around and look at his reflection. And when he saw himself, he was taken aback with how fierce he looked. Yes. Like fierce, like scary not fierce like Priscilla Queen of the Desert. You know what I mean? <laughs> and so that experience really gave him the confidence to get into this role. And it's a good thing he did because Wes is such a prominent feature of this movie that, you know, I think it played a huge part in his overall career. I think that's very reasonable to say. Yes. Now, if I remember correctly... His hesitation about the role was playing somebody so, like, big and bad and scary and mean. Yeah. And wasn't his next role the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? I think he did a couple of TV appearances in between Road Warrior and Commando. But, yeah, but, I mean, he's built yeah, his so career. Yeah, so maybe he, like, opened his door to yeah. stuff like the Arnold Schwarzenegger role. This archetype of big, mean, scary people. And he's gone on to just do a lot of those type of roles. Yeah. I mean actors they don't want to be typecast but if typecasting gets you roles in good movies yeah pay is pay <laughs> right <laughs> so there is another little interesting anecdote from road war george miller encouraged all of his actors to kind of dream up a backstory for their character and so the backstory that vernon wells kind of imagined for wes is that he's like a, a former vietnam veteran however they don't really say much more than that in the thing that i read because they instantly start talking about the controversy surrounding wes and the fact that he has this young boy with golden hair you know chained to the back of his motorcycle and there was a lot of wondering about this character of the golden youth now the golden youth is played by jerry o'sullivan he has only ever done road warrior this is his only role on imdb because he was just a delivery boy and george miller and i think terry hayes they were sitting in george's office one day and they just saw him out the window and decided hey that's our golden youth and so they, they had him called up to the office and they just hired him right off the street yep but going back to the controversial thing the golden youth was apparently originally written as a female character and they cast it obviously as a male and so miller explained this by saying that sexuality is kind of interchangeable after the apocalypse the phrase any port in a storm kind of comes to mind but i think it raised a lot of questions people saw him with this 
fair haired. How would you describe Golden Youth? Oh, well, I know how I'm supposed to describe him. He's, yeah, a fair haired beauty. Yeah. I don't think he's beautiful. I don't care for blonde men. Yeah. It's still, I think, I think blonde hair on men is just odd, but that's just a personal preference. Everyone kind of saw this as a dominant and submissive, you know, BDSM type of relationship. Interestingly enough, Vernon Wells didn't really see it that way. Like personally, the way he approached it, he thought up this backstory where Wes found the golden youth as like a smaller child. And so he kind of like brought him up as more of like a father son relationship. But that kind of thing doesn't really come across. Apparently, there is talk about a deleted scene where this is made more apparent, but like no one can find it so i feel like it's just vernon wells trying to not insinuate that his character is in any sort of homosexual relationship which you look at wes and you're like okay well he's not your typical gay coded character no i think the only way that he's coded is by the presence of the golden youth and i don't see the golden youth and wes being so much in a homosexual relationship i think it's more of a wes is a dominant character and the golden youth is a submissive character yeah that's what i was thinking like you know i i you do get the sense there is coding of dominant and submissive yeah and it doesn't have to be in a sexual way i don't feel like wes is thinking all that hard about it like if he's getting something from this golden youth i don't think he's thinking in the back of his mind this is you know i am getting something from this male individual he's more thinking i am getting something from this thing that is mine yes that i have exactly um there's evidence i think it's in minute eight when when he pulls out the arrow when he finally actually pulls it out he's got this look on his face like he's enjoying it Mm -hmm. so i think that kind of goes along with the idea of dominance and submission and he is in possession of this boy because he can't. Yeah. And having control over this person and dragging him everywhere with him gives him pleasure. Yeah. I'm not necessarily going to stand up and like pass judgment on this relationship. I mean, I don't want to kink shame people in the post-apocalypse. But I... at the same time, it's like, it just doesn't seem healthy. No, I think the only thing I'm going to shame about the situation is that it the golden youth doesn't seem to be there voluntarily, which is kind of hard to read. I mean, yeah. it, he's so like... He's so blank in the face. Yeah, he doesn't really have expression. The thing that kind of tells me he's not there voluntarily is the chain around his neck, which could be a submissive thing that he is voluntarily participating in. And Mm -hmm. if it's voluntary, fine, go for it. If you're happy, you're happy. I don't care. But you definitely never get the- As long as it's voluntary. You just never get the sense that he is happy, though. He just seems like- No, he's Different to the whole thing. Yes. Like, he's surviving. Like, this is his- Like, this is what he's doing to survive. Yeah. Like, if I allow this dominant man to dominate me, he'll also protect me. Yeah. this that is, that is valid. He may not like what he's doing, but he's surviving. Yeah. It's, it's like in a prison situation. You know, Wes is a prominent figure, and as long as you remore up to the belly of that shark, you know, it's not going to be necessarily a dignified position, but you're going to get food. You're guaranteed survival. Like how you switch from the prison analogy to an ocean analogy, like seamless. It's Shark Week. It so. is Shark Week. 
when we're recording this, it's Shark yes. Week. I think it's going to be very interesting to watch the Golden Youth throughout the rest of the movie. For how long he lasts? Yes. I got, okay. I've only seen the movie once all the way through <laughs> in recent years, so I don't recall how long he lasts. Well. Apparently it's not that long. He doesn't last as long as the Interceptor. I'll say that much. Okay. <laughs> I know the Interceptor doesn't last that long. Yeah. I'm interested in more clues as to the nature of their relationship and, and anything about the Golden Youth, because in this minute, nothing. You get nothing mm-hmm. from him. You can definitely see, though, and you can't really say the way the character is written because there's not really much to the character, but I think it was probably... A good choice for them to cast a male actor. Now, granted, they probably would have changed up the wardrobe if they had cast a female in that role because there is a giant, like, boob window. <laughs> on the golden youth's outfit it's literally like the entire front of his chest and torso is just exposed and it's like okay if they had cast a female they would have had to alter that outfit to you know not get some sort of x rating or something like that because i feel like you can have boobs in a movie but if you have like constantly exposed boobs for a long time i feel like the censors would look poorly on that i'm not actually a member of the mpaa i don't know how they rate things but i just get that feeling that if it had been a female they would have rated the movie worse than r (laughs) (laughs) yes i think also if it had been a female the discussion that we just had about dominance and submission and being there voluntarily would have been completely different it would have been tainted by the history of domestic abuse that many women have faced yes in like all of history yes like there is a there is a storied men have a really strong track record of abusing women all throughout history and having the golden youth be a female it would have just been one more you know abused woman character in media yes making it a potentially abused male character while yes that does happen in society there are gay relationships both male and female where it's an abusive relationship where it's a dominant submissive relationship of course that happens uh but it's it's discussed in a different way for better or worse yeah especially in this time frame with that this was made in the very early 80s it was discussed in a very very different way so yeah i don't think there's cause to freak out because omg there's an evil gay character because i i don't really see him that way no i don't see it that way you know i see him as a you know an abuser yeah type of thing and it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be about sex. I think it's really I easy. I don't think it is about sex. I think he's an abuser. I think it's really easy to look at Wes and just say he's a sociopath. Yes. That he is out to use people and abuse people, and that's what he likes to do. He's got a thing about pain, which is going to become very apparent tomorrow. Yes. So we actually have not gotten No, past, we haven't. <laughs> we have not gotten past Max and Wes staring at each other and yes. the slow pan up Wes's outfit. Yes. So we go from looking at Wes, getting our first shot of him, looking back to Max, and he can like hear behind him like dripping gasoline. So he looks back at the buggy and you can see that gas is just leaking out of that gas tank. There are cracks in it and it's just getting lost in the pavement. So Max is caught between a rock and a hard place. He can either keep his eye on Wes and make sure that he doesn't try anything funny or he can not let all this gasoline go to waste and he chooses to take care of the gasoline because that is more important than keeping an eye on a crazy dude. And so he runs back over to the buggy 
sees that he can't really put his giant gas can underneath the drip. And so he just starts grabbing random things. Yeah, I like how quickly he did that whole thing. Mm -hmm. It shows how practiced he is at Mm -hmm. doing this sort of thing and how important it is. Yeah, Max is very practiced at looking at a pile of junk and being able to very quickly put it together in his head how to best utilize that to accomplish a goal. Yes. I mean, last time he was pooling up gasoline to blow up someone, but now he's looking at a pile of things, say, okay, how can I best collect this gasoline and right, for you know, my own survival and not let it explode someone? Yeah. <laughs> So the objects that I saw, they were, I don't know, they they were kind of hard to decipher what they were, weirdly. Mm. I saw a helmet, a jug, and a hubcap. Yeah, either a hubcap or some sort of tin lid. Yeah, a lid of some kind. It's yeah. shaped like a flying disc, like that you yeah. would use for, you know, throwing around in a park with a dog, but it was like metal, like he put it down on the pavement and it made a clanking sound. Mm-hmm. So it's not quite something you'd probably use for recreation or anything like that. But yeah, he put those things down, he started catching the gas and then he went so far as to take his rag and like start sopping up the gasoline that had actually already gotten onto the pavement and then ringing it back into those containers yeah and i don't know a lot about gasoline and cars but i mean doesn't the gasoline kind of need to be like clean and pure because it combusts inside the engine Mm -hmm. and so for that combustion to be controlled all those cylinders need to combust like evenly and rhythmically yeah that's how an engine works and if that gas is like dirty yeah it's gonna muck up your engine it's gonna muck up your engine and if you screw up those explosions you're gonna destroy your engine yeah i think that's why getting gasoline from a tank is so important the idea that he's gonna catch it any way he can and so i'm very concerned about mopping it up off the ground and the important thing about that is sure it's going to be like a little dirty if he mops it up but but it's more important to have it than to have it clean exactly okay it goes back to that thing i said earlier about any port in a storm yeah like he needs (laughs) to fill his gas tank with gasoline and even if it's got a little bit of dirt in it yeah he'll take it who knows maybe he's got some sort of like filter like cheesecloth yeah. That he's collected Maybe and he can he... filter it out. Yeah, because he seems, I mean, he seems to know about cars. He oh, seems absolutely. to know enough about cars to know not to put dirty gas in your tank. Like we saw plenty in the first Mad Max movie of how good he is with vehicles. Like, yeah, that's that was our introduction to him, was be, him fixing his own car. Max is a classic gearhead. So yeah. if anyone can maintain an engine in the midst of yeah. using whatever fuel you can find, it's Max. And heck, I mean... He may know how much dirt an engine can handle. Maybe it can handle a little bit. Yeah. Although I do like the idea of him like having a Have very fine strainer. Clean it. That he can like clean his gasoline with. It does seem like the sort of thing that you would have to do in the post-apocalyptic world, especially out in like a wasteland type area. Yeah. Like nothing, you, you just can't take anything the way it is. Like you can't drink water the way it is. You have to clean it. You have to filter it. You can't take food and just eat it as is. You have to cook it. Yeah. Because just that nothing is as easy as it looks on the surface. Mm -hmm. life is hard so as we're talking about max catching gasoline we are leaving wes up on the road and he hates we're not paying attention to him for like five seconds 
And so he starts screaming at Max. And it's this funny little thing because Max is sitting there taking care of the gasoline. And all of a sudden he hears the screaming and he like picks up his head and looks back up the road. Kind of like, is he screaming? Yeah, he's still there. And we cut to him and yeah, he's screaming. And he's doing this like long drawn out. It was like a war cry. Yeah. And didn't you say it kind of sounded like they modulated it or something? Okay. I swear it sounded like bagpipes. (laughs) And I kind of doubt that it really was bagpipes because I don't recall hearing bagpipes in any in the first Mad Max or in any part of this movie. So it seems out of place. Yeah, I think that was all Vernon Wells. I but, think that was like 100% Yeah, so him. I think they just accentuated his yell and made, made it sound pretty awesome. Even though I hesitate to say it sounded pretty awesome because it was petty and small. Yeah. He wanted Max to look at him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was petulant. Yes. Almost. So Max is crouched down by the buggy and he's just kind of looking at Wes and you kind of get the sense by the expression on Max's face that he's just not sure what Wes is all about. He's got this almost squinting, like, what is this guy all about? He's he's trying to read him. Yeah, curious. And it's not super clear what's going on. And so we cut back to Wes, and this is what wraps up the minute. Wes is mounted on his motorcycle, and you can see the bolt sticking very clearly out of his arm. And so Wes slowly takes his hand and, like, wraps it around the bolt in his arm. And the whole time, he's, like, moving very deliberately, and it feels like an intimidation game Oh, yeah, it's definitely like a power move. He's trying to impress and scare and intimidate Max. Yeah, and it's funny because that's why he got Max's reaction. Because if you're going to do an intimidating power mode, you need an audience. Yeah. You know, you can't like rip something out of your arm and act all tough if no one's paying attention. Right. (laughs) So he's got to cry and yell and pay attention to me. I... (laughs) I love that Wes is trying to be badass and he's trying to communicate that to Max. But us as viewers just see the whole thing as being childish. Yeah, we're really on Max's side. Max is all like, okay, get the gasoline and don't hang around. Right. And meanwhile, Wes is trying to like play this mind game and be all like tough about it. And it's like, you got bigger fish to fry, bud. This is the second half to what I started saying a little while ago about this is their mini relationship that mirrors their entire relationship. Max doesn't care. Right. This is why they're not rivals. (laughs) Wes is trying to intimidate and exert control over in some way over Max. Max doesn't care. Nope. Max is doing his own thing. He's concerned with his fuel and whatever he's going to do after that. And his only concern with Wes is if Wes is going to come after him. Right. Other than that, he does not care. Oh, okay. So in the screenplay, this scene, it pretty much plays out exactly the same. The only thing that's in the screenplay that's not in the movie is that Wes mouths the words for you. You know what? As he pulls as he pulls out the arrow. Kind of saying like this like arrow, this is, arrow for is for you. I mean, technically the arrow was originally intended for him. But yeah, I can see like this arrow's got your name on it, buddy. That type of sentiment trying to be conveyed. That is how we close the minute.
minute. We are halfway through the moment where he pulls the arrow out of his arm. Yep, we're going to see a little bit of uh, on-the-road surgery, and that'll come tomorrow. Yeah, we get some great crazy eyes. Oh, yeah. No one does crazy eyes quite like Vernon Wells in this movie. He gets the trophy for crazy eyes. The Mad Max Minute Podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share on social media to help others find the show. Thank you for joining us for Minute 7 of The Road Warrior. We'll see you tomorrow.